Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to talk to Sarah Rose Eder. Sarah is the author of Ripe, which is published by Scribner, and The Book of X, which is the winner of the 2019 Shirley Jackson Award. Her short fiction collection, Tongue Party, was selected by Deb Olin Unferth to be published as the winner of the 2011 Cake Train Award. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Time, Guernica, Bomb, Gulf Coast, The Cut, Vice, and more. She has been awarded residence at the, residences at the Jack Kerouac House, the Disquiet International Program in Portugal, and the Golskiton, did I pronounce that correctly? Golkistan. Golkistan, thank you. Writing residency in Iceland. I got to know about this. In 2017, she was a keynote speaker at the Society for the Study of American Women Writers Conference in Bordeaux, France, where she presented on surrealist writing as a mo mode of feminism. She earned her BA in English from Pennsylvania State University, Go Nittany Lions, and her MFA in fiction from Rosemont College. She lives in Los Angeles, California. How are you this afternoon? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It means Man. a lot to me. Oh, it's awesome to talk to you. Um, yeah. I'm honored. Having read Ripe, that'll be, you know, the the main focus of our conversation. Iceland, I heard they read a lot there. Like they give each other books for like Christmas or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Very literary over there. Um, really magical place, honestly. Huh. The youngest, the late, like, most recently formed Earth on the oh, planet. So shoot. it's like the youngest land. Isn't that crazy? It's Whoa. like, yeah, it's kind of like if you're going to see like a baby Yellowstone, but it's everywhere. Oh. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. It's like uh, I'm referencing what's the movie? I'm referencing Zoolanders. Like Hansel is so hot right now. Iceland is so hot right now, right? I think it's kind of like the place to go. I think it's been hot for a while. I yeah, think you're right. Hot, you're right. Maybe. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Exactly. Well, I'd love to know about. Um, I'm assuming probably Pennsylvania or Philadelphia area, but just growing up, more so about your reading and writing life. Were you the kid that was always at the library, writing your own stuff? What was your relationship with the written word? Yeah, um, my dad would always joke that he was going to sell the first book I ever wrote, which is this like mm. bunch of notebook paper stapled together that and it's in crayon and like big, <laughs> you know, scrawled letters. So I was making books at a really young age. You know, I think the one he wanted to sell is called The Rainbow, <laughs> you okay. know. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was always, always writing, always reading. He was a big reader. And so he definitely passed that on to me. Um, I don't think that I really ever thought I would be a writer, but I was still like writing poems and publishing them. And I, yeah. I wrote in private for a very long time. Huh. Who were, who were some of the writers or what was some of the writing, the text that really inspired you, challenged you, or just uh, entertained you growing up? Yeah. I mean, I think there was, I was always in honors English, even when I was being a bad kid. Flex. You know? And um, my, I had a professor or a teacher at that point who started to give me some more challenging work um, after he put a Sylvia Plath poem up on the projector and I like 
correctly analyzed it very quickly. It was kind of like, I was the first time I ever saw a Plath poem. I think I was in ninth grade, 10th grade. And I analyzed it like immediately. And he started to give me more challenging work and Emily nice. Dickinson and all that stuff. So he started me on the sad girl diet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I read everything I could get my hands on and, but I do, that was like a kind of a formative moment where it really flipped to like literature with a capital L. I think yeah. Ooh, where I, like it that. I like that. Yeah. For me, it was uh cat in the rain, Ernest Hemingway. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Oh man. He had an incredible uh, English teacher senior year and they, he gave us that to analyze and it was like, Whoa, that really opened, opened up some doors, right. It opened up some just like different ways of looking at literature for sure. Yeah. I, it's uh, a, it's so funny how you've got that like one piece where you're like, this mm -hmm. is what I realized like writing could be yeah. something more than just like that basic narrative that we always all start with when we're really young, you know? Right. So I read, I read ripe on, on Kindle. So the, the footnotes or the acknowledgement or not the acknowledgement, but like the references were a little bit confusing to me. They would show up, they would show up like in between chapters and stuff, but you also, I want to say referenced uh, the hills like white elephants, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Hemingway, of course, which is, you know, one of the most symbolic allegorical stories of, you know, right. It's my favorite Hemingway. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's like one of those perfect pieces of writing that like mm. you can never hit that level in your right? life. Oh, yeah. totally. Totally. Yeah, but actually very funny. The the poem that my teacher had me analyze of Sylvia Plath was Metaphors. Okay. Um, yeah, which I was like, I don't know why you're showing this to an eighth grader, but <laughs> Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. <laughs> Are, are you a are you a short kind of short story first before um before novel? Like I mean, obviously you can be both, but are you like a big fan of the short story form as well? Uh, I think I was really initially because I didn't think I could ever write a novel. Same. So that is where I started was with short stories, and I never thought I would ever be able to do a full length ever. So mm -hmm. when I went to Iceland on a residency, I just gave myself like a month to mess around, and that's mm -hmm. when I wrote the Book of X and I. Mm -hmm started to really get fascinated with the form of the novel because it's such a puzzle that you're kind of building and solving by yourself. Right. And it's so hard. And I have to be so obsessed with the subject matter because I'm in it for so long. Mm. You know, like everyone's asking me right now, like, what are you working on next? And it's like, well, I have an idea of what it is, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm obsessed yet. I'm a, I'm a little bit in my mm. resting phase. I'm just reading a lot. And like, okay. that feels really good. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I've gotten I haven't written a short story in a little while. I, I'm I'm very obsessed with novels right now. Do you have to be obsessed with the subject matter to write something good? Yeah, I mean I think that's part of my challenge when, you know, uh when a writer is lucky enough to sell fiction on a premise, mm. right? You hopefully get to the point in your career where you can say, here's the first fifty pages in an outline. Right, right, right. That makes me very nervous because it's promising that I'm going to stay obsessed. It's promising that mm. it's going to end up a certain way. And so that gives me like a level of anxiety that I've never really gotten away from. Ah, very interesting. You know, the name of the podcast is the Chills at Will podcast. It's, it's based on a Tobias Wolf story, Thrills at Will, and the idea of, you know, memorizing, like someone memorized like song lyrics, memorizing certain lines from poems and stories that you love. So, you know, it's just about those those ones that, you know, give you chills. It's pretty self-explanatory. Any any short stories you think of that really just, you could, not that you've memorized them, but you could go back to ones that really, you, you talked about, um, you know, Hills Like White Elephants, but any other short stories in particular that really thrilled you and continue to? You know, I think I probably might have this one memorized because it's very short, <laughs> but 
It's response to a request by Robert Walzer. Okay. And it's a really, it's almost like a micro fiction, mm -hmm. but it's doing something so interesting with the form. I think it's like two pages, three pages long. Mm -hmm. um, and it just breaks my heart every time I read it. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of based on his brother was a much more famous playwright mm -hmm. and his brother comes to him and asks him for an idea for a play. And then he turns it into this very like, meta commentary on like human existence and agony and suffering um that's very surreal and you know i, I i'm i could i could read that one a million times yeah yeah so in in 2024 i mean who are you you know some of your contemporaries who i mean ripe has definitely your your own singular voice i think if i had enough time i could think of more comps as they say comparisons but it definitely is a very singular voice um you know the way you do like the definitions and you have a lot of um, yeah, singularities. But who are you really excited about? Whether they whether they outwardly influence your writing or not, mm -hmm. who are you excited about? Like, man, he's got a new you know article coming out, or she's got a new book. Who are you really excited about that are your contemporaries? Yeah, in America, I would say always like I'm looking at Carmen Maria Machado. Mm. I love Kristen Arnett. Halle Butler has a new one coming out this year that is awesome, and in her like same kind of bracing wit, you know. Um, and then I always am reading Melissa Broder, anything that she mm. puts out. Um, I think when I think about what's happening in translation, there are some people that are being translated this year that I'm really excited about. So there's going to be an, a new Olga T. My okay. girl, Olga. I love Olga. And I'm really excited uh -huh. for this one because it sounds like it's more of a traditional narrative, whereas like a couple of her books are kind of like um, trying to like mess with form in a way. And this sounds like it has a little bit more of like a structure, like, uh, drive your plow over the bones of the dead did. So I'm excited to see that return. And then there's a writer that I love, Vijas Horth, who I think they've never translated her top novel in her native country into English. So this will be the first year. Um, so I'm excited about those two also. Nice. Are, yeah. are, you, are you bilingual and multilingual? Do you speak in other languages? No, but I'm like very obsessed with what happens when something gets translated. And I'm right? I've interviewed a couple of translators because I feel like there's some kind of magic happening. Yeah. The sentences are so crisp and clear. And they and I I can't understand if the magic is happening in the translation or if they're just writing better sentences than us. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm really uh, you know, it's also like, you know, it's fascinating. I think like only only 10% of literature is being translated into English. Most right. of the time, 90% is going from English into another language. Um, and, and, you know, it's also, there's, there are things happening in other countries that we're, we're kind of locked out of because those people aren't being translated. Like, I'm pretty sure the most revolutionary poet in Mexico right now has never been translated into English. And that mm -hmm. seems very much for a reason. <laughs> who, who would, oh, who would that be? Oh, I got to go look. I have yeah. to go look it up. Yeah. yeah. It came yeah. up in one of my interviews. I think I was talking to um, Susan Bernofsky or Jennifer Croft. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I get to talk to Jennifer Croft in a few months. She has, I don't know if you've seen the cover of her newest book. The The envelope has the book outline. It's the coolest envelope I've ever seen. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. for her too. She's another one coming out this year. It's right. so funny because... Um, there's just so much coming out and when people ask me i feel like i'm always forgetting somebody's of that course I of course love, yeah. you know? Put you on the spot with that yeah no i, it's talked, fine. I talked to Mar uh, martina testa i want to say she was the check this out she was the italian translator for infinite jest 
Oh, nice. That's amazing. <laughs> so, what a, what a, what a job. Right. So I mean, just talking about how do you, and then you, I, I, I haven't read infinite jazz. So I'm not gonna be one of those people who claims I have. And, but I've just, you know, I was talking about some of Wallace's essays and, you know, just the, the maximalism and just how do you translate this word? It was really cool to talk to her about like, how do you say that in Italian? Yeah. The translators yeah. always get really excited to translate people who are alive. So you end up kind of developing a relationship with them. Oh, yeah, of course, the yeah. goal is kind of like that they would translate you for your whole life. Mm. But they'll always email you questions and they'll say, Sarah, this, like this sentence is not, you know, it's not going to work. And it's, it's kind right. of, it's kind of a funny exercise in trust because like there's no way for me to gut check mm. what they're doing i just have to right. yes. them. you know I, what are you gonna do i can't am i gonna go learn yeah. spanish in time yes <laughs> so- well we'll get on that okay <laughs> <laughs> no but um yeah what you're saying about 10 percent versus 90 percent, 10 percent of you know what's translated obviously that's like a microcosm of just america in general right we kind of like ah whatever's happening in the rest of the world eh, you know yeah and it's also I don't know. I do think on some level, I maybe it's because what's being translated is so often done on a small press. I do feel like a lot of the work is more experimental and, you know, so that's exciting to me. It always, it gives me a lot of ideas and just kind of makes me think about things a little bit of a different way. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've asked a a writer, have you read, and I can't believe I'm forgetting your name, the the one, the Italian um, one who's like got the pen name or the one who's written all these, a lot of them became Netflix and she's really famous, but she's- we, My brilliant, we, Elena Ferrante. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Have you read any Elena, Elena Fer- Ferrante? Uh, yeah, I think I've read one or two. Okay. Not two. trying to start a literary beef, but like, is it, is it, would you recommend it? Or is it kind of like, it's like pop fiction, which I don't know if that's a negative connotation. Is oh, like, no, I don't, I don't think it's pop fiction at all. Yeah. I think uh, it depends what you're looking for, yeah. you know? I, I get a little squirrely about that. Not that you're trying to start beef. It's just, <laughs> I think I liked it enough to read two books, but I didn't go then read all of them. Yeah. It's I just kind sure. of, here's the thing. My, it's not exactly in my wheelhouse. And it's the sure. same thing as like Sally Rooney, where I'm like, I respect it. I uh-huh. know there's nice stuff happening on the page, but like, yeah. is it what I would do in my spare time and read every single book this person ever wrote? I gotcha, I gotcha. It's probably not really... Yeah. I tend to be in a creepier place. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. sure. Yeah. And those two ladies, I think they are very talented and wonderful. Yeah. And I was like, I couldn't do it. But yeah. I tend to be like over in the like artsy fartsy kids corner, you know, <laughs> smoking cigarettes next to the trash. <laughs> That's funny. I, I love to pick up some Alana Ferrante one of these days, but sounds like, uh, like you say, yeah, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, here's the thing. It's also like so much of it is dependent on my mood. Like I'm like, if I would have picked it up in a different time, would I become obsessed with it? I don't know. I'm just kind of, um, I'm a little fickle. Yeah, same. I would love to talk about about Ripe. This is ridiculously punny, P-U-N-N-Y, but I always like to ask about seeds for the book. But um, bum Pomegranates and such. Uh, First of all, the cover, again, I kind of bummed I read it on Kindle because I couldn't fully get the shiny, the brilliance of the cover, even though it looks cool on Kindle. Um, but yeah, tell us about some seeds for the book. Um, you know, maybe when you approximately started, I know people can't, it's always hard to pinpoint exactly when you started, but um, just some ideas for it. it, It's, it's of the time and not of the time. It's got COVID references, but it's also very a time, almost like a timeless book. So I'm interested in seeds for it. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I think the, I really was okay, only okay with COVID being like a framing device that would kind of add to the terror. I don't have a lot of you know, um, stomach for COVID novels. I think we're too close to it to yes. want to 
relive it again. And like, I was okay with the foreboding of it looming, but not, we literally, um, well, actually let me back up. You asked how it started. Uh, my agent and I met right before my first novel, the book of X came out. And while we were talking, he asked me to send him some new pages because he wanted to see what my next projects would be. And he was the only agent who had reached out or spoken to me that had asked for new work. Mm -hmm. And at that time it ended up being really helpful because I think it's very easy to get caught up in the current project as it's coming out and stop thinking about the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote probably the first, I want to say 25 or 50 pages of ripe. And we ended up deciding to work together based on that. I think at that time I was calling it like Sad Valley, but then mm -hmm. Anna Weir's Uncanny Valley came out and it just started to, yeah. the title was kind of not working anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but then I went on book tour for Book of X for a long time, I think like two years. And, you know, he, he just gave me the freedom to go promote that book. And then we ended up going into lockdown and I really started in earnest. Okay working on it then and I had always had the first sentence that first sentence never changed mm -hmm. I would say probably the first three pages never really changed that they were always the same other than like minor tweaks yeah. um but after we went into lockdown ripe was really a book that my father had asked me to write and he passed away right before we went into lockdown and so you know there is kind of like when people talk about how sad the book is, it's really because I was just like very grief stricken. And, you know, the father in the book is very much all of that stuff is me trying to capture my memories of him because I'm afraid they're going to go away. And it, and all of that, like, I'm not afraid to say is like true. Those are like some of my favorite memories of him. And so there was this kind of um, engine pushing me forward. Like when people will ask me, like, how do you get motivated to finish a novel? And with this one, it was very much like, I was just trying to figure out how to not forget. Damn, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your father. It's okay. I mean, I think I've really come to some kind of peace with it. And I think it's it's interesting. It's I have had a very hard life and I've had a lot of loss. But I, you know, when he died, I was like, oh God, there's like a new pain that I haven't experienced. Mm -hmm. There's like an exquisite pain that is much crazy. And it really does like it just turns you into steel and just sharpens you it's like it it's like I remember telling a friend it's like almost beautiful how horrible it is like because you just are stripped down to nothing you know and then you rebuild I mean I guess that's what they do to you in the army <laughs> right right <laughs> so it's kind of like that but yeah um writing this book definitely helped because I did feel like I was able to preserve him in some way well yeah thanks for saying that that's that's part of the whole idea of my project is, you know, is memorializing my brother as well, who passed away right before COVID. And, um, sorry fact that, that. well, thank you. The fact that you're talking about it, right. I've, I've, I've been so, for the most part, so, you know, blessed by people, you know, being so good, but there's also so many people, right. Who just, who don't talk about it. Right. I don't know if you notice that with your own, they just talk about it as if like something, uh, monumentous didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I think right? let's talk about it. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think the thing is, especially for the rape has been out for a while now, like we're heading into paperback and it's easier for me now. But in the beginning of doing press and interviews, it was very, very hard to talk about. it. Oh, I bet. I bet. And, you know, I hate to say this, but like it is for me to be taken seriously as a woman author. I don't feel like I can come out of the gate sobbing in all these interviews. Mm. And so there is a way in which 
you have to decide before you go on the press tour for the book, like, what will I not give them? Mm. What will I not give away? Right. Yeah. And I, I write a list for every book. Here's what I won't talk about. Okay. Here's what the boundaries are because I know it's only going to like truly hurt me and set me back. Right. And so you, you kind of become a little more careful with your mental health. Once you learn how to promote a book and what goes into it and how oh, conversations wow. can go somewhere that mm. might actually be very harmful for you or, you know, take more out of you than you want to give. So I think when people don't want to talk about it, I think sometimes it's because they don't want to seem weak or they aren't able to talk about it without really I, you know. I, didn't, I didn't describe that very well. What I meant was um, those who, and I get it, I 100% get it that it's it's awkward, you know, for someone to talk to you, Not, nothing to do with writing about it at all, just someone in, in public in person to talk to you. And I, I understand how awkward it is, because you're never going to say the right thing. Yeah. So, so my thing I, is just say something, right? Say something. I, I do agree with you, though. I, there's times where I am hanging out with friends who haven't lost a parent yet, and I kind of want, like want to warn them. Uh, like something's coming that you're not going to. And and now I have so much more sympathy for my friends who've lost parents before me and understanding sure. that they already like went through the gauntlet of it. Yes. Gauntlet um, word, man. You know, it is, it really, really is. Yeah. You talk about that list you make. Is that for you? Is that, does your agency that, or is that just for you? The list you make about what you're not going to write about? Oh, I mean, it's mostly, it's mostly for me because yeah. especially since, I tend to write about things that are very personal, even if it's fictionalized mm -hmm. things that I'm close to. Um, I have to be just a little careful of what I let myself talk about, sure. you know, because an interview isn't therapy. <laughs> you know, right, I, have right, right, right. I have a therapist. I have a therapist. Therapy is therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also too, you know, if you're, you know, going to be a public ish person, uh, does that mean they get out everything about you? You know, yeah. like, no, there's, there's still some stuff that's for me. Of course. Of <laughs> you course. Know? So the book starts off with the pomegranate and the breakdown of the exocarp, it's quote, mm -hmm. the outermost layer of the ovaries or of fruits of the skin of a peach or a grape. I might have been off by one or two words, but that's the definition that he's given. Um, and I, you were talking about the first line. I believe the first line is a man shouldn't be seen like that all lit up. Mm -hmm. Is that, the, is, that, is that the very first line? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we have, we later find out her name is Cassie, the narrator. She's like on the bus or the train She's in San Francisco. And with a capital B, she talks about the believers, right? These are the techies who, who ostensibly believe in the, in the mission and the philosophy. There's they're a great, all in. They're all in, right? All in. There's a great, I, lo I love how you use the word pulped as a verb. The narrator says something to the effect of, I am pulped. I think probably for that day and just kind of in general. But I wonder about that first line and kind of starting it off in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, um, as you did. Yeah, I mean, I think probably. So I lived in in San Francisco for a year and I worked in Silicon Valley. And I think probably two or three weeks in, I stopped into a coffee shop on my way to get on the train to work. And the owner of the coffee shop looked pretty shaken up and started talking to her and she told me that a man had set himself on fire out front of the store the night before oh and tried to put him out, mm. you know, and the conversation started by her saying, you gotta, you know, you're, you're new here. You gotta be careful. And I said, well, I'm from Philadelphia. Like I've seen a lot of shit, you know? <laughs> mm. um, and then she said, no, it's, it's a little different here. And then she kind of explained that. Uh, and it, it kind of, 
in the context, it was almost too heavy handed of a foreshadowing mm. because it was like, here I was like all chipper. Yeah, going to my yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. I just moved across the country and this, it was kind of somebody tipping their hand and being like, listen, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I was ever like walking around smiling. Cause I've always been kind of goth, but you know, yeah. um, and yeah, I just couldn't stop thinking about that. And then it had happened, you know, multiple other times Mm. Uh, while I lived there and you know the same is true there's reference throughout the book to like men throwing themselves in front of the trains yeah Um, those things were also happening Um, and so it was a very weird a weird and unsettling world to be in and so it felt like the right way to start the book because you know um, when you say a man shouldn't be seen like that all lit up you're kind of going to ask a question because what does lit up mean? Yes. And and it's like you, it's almost like you're kind of faking out the reader because you're like, you know, they, she couldn't possibly mean lit up on fire. She must mean he's standing in a spotlight or, right, you know, right, right. right. And so my favorite first sentences are kind of, I always talk about them as like keys, like a great first sentence is going to have, so many layers to it that it will open up a world that yes. will keep going yes um, you know and so that's that's usually for most of my novels it's the first sentence you know every time i mean obviously i know you you know all writers struggle through but i'm sure you've had 20 or 40 or 60 times in your life where you've just you've had a great writing day i've had like one and that was and that was because of that first line the first line was uh in a in a class in a creative writing class the the prompt was all along, I knew it was him. And I just rolled with that one. That was one of the few times, you know, I cranked out 12 pages in a day kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah those, you know, those first I lines. I don't know about, I, I I say this all the time. I don't know if I have great writing days or if I just really edit the shit out of the work. Mm, Whenever I go. teach class, I, I try to explain like, everyone's first draft looks like shit all your favorite writers are writing uh, the first because you're just trying to get the thing out so you have sure. something to work with and mold yeah. and play with yeah. but i mean i think it probably took me six months to write the first draft of this and i was working full-time yeah. but i mean we then the editing was like three years yeah. you know i always kind of it's the time it's the time you take to reshape it sure. that really is what's going to make it great versus like I'm not coming out of the gate with all those good sentences. Oh, you gotta lie about that. Come on. <laughs> no, because then people think I'm like a genius. It. I'm not a genius. I just <laughs> work hard. That's all. You know. Obviously, there's there's the intelligence there, but I, I get that. I, but what if what if when I'm working on that piece of crap that I put out there, what if the house burns down, but only the computer exists? You know, survives, and people see it. What then? I mean, they're, they're gonna, gonna they're find gonna my... judge me. They're gonna judge me. Yeah. Just, I mean, they're gonna find my awful work. I mean, I save. I save all my drafts yeah. so that people can see them and make fun of them. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. I always say symbol sometimes when I mean motif and vice versa, but a big motif is like the hovering black hole, right? hovering black hole that Cassie describes that's basically followed her or is alongside her at most times, you know, certain events, it'll, it'll get smaller. It'll get the, you know, the size of, you know, a pin or whatever kind of things you would use. And there's also, of course, like you, you talked about this idea of this man on fire, which is obviously just horrific. 
And Kathy continues to talk about her loneliness as well. You obviously write so much about black holes and you define them, you give histories of them. Is the black hole around her? I mean, is that anomalous to depression? Is that not exactly the same thing? How would you describe the black hole? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons I love kind of going into like the surreal in work is because it allows you to project what you want onto it. Mm. Um, and the same is true for the first book, the Book of X, where the girl's born in the shape of a knot, you know, her stomach. Right. And it's like, okay, could that be like, she's dealing with body issues, anxiety. Like, I love to have a symbol where you can kind mm. of meet in the middle. And one thing I think right. about a lot is like, if I'm writing something and I say, I'm writing about Linda, she's 33, she has a silver minivan, she has six kids, versus I just say the word mother, right? Mo the word mother leaves room for you to project your mom yeah, into yeah, yeah. Spot or whatever yeah. you associate that with. And so yeah. one way that I think or try to make surrealism work is being just vague enough that the reader has room to meet me and and bring their own shit to the table. Yeah, yeah. And for the black hole for me when I was writing it it was certainly about grief and trying to understand where my father had gone and where what is on the other side and what is the edge of the universe and there were days I woke up and I couldn't move because I was so grief stricken. And then the next day I would wake up and it would be smaller and I could at least get up and walk the dog. And then some days it would be almost gone and I could see my friends and like mm -hmm. live a normal life. Um, and so for me, when I was writing it, it was definitely the black hole was about grief, but now it would be, you know, anxiety or depression or anger issues, whatever it is that you're trying to grapple with and get better at, but that can sometimes, sure. you know, eclipse you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you for that, that explanation. Um, you know, it's constant, obviously you talked about it. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor and that is interesting that you can really project whatever or whomever on it. Um, Cassie, Cassie, it likes her Coke and that's cocaine, not necessarily Coke, uh, Coca-Cola. And it seems like, you know, maybe that's, um, kind of endemic or pandemic, uh, endemic has to be the term endemic of, you know, this, this crazy working these ridiculous hours, right where, you know, working at this company called Voyager, all in caps, right? Synergy and all these terms that we hear in Silicon Valley. And it's just a go, go, go. And it's like, oh, you're not working 14 hours? Like 13 is okay. But so you can see why she feels as if she needs it. And if not, she says, without the cocaine, without other ways to cope, she feels like a, quote, deafening river of melancholy. Mm -hmm. That's bars right there. That's a great, what a phrase. What a phrase. You talk about projecting and... We get the the idea early on that that Cassie's mother is she's a stinger like a like a wasp like a bee. She has these stinging comments. Um, later on in the book, there's some really brutal scenes where the mom is kind of like, you know, just yelling at her, and she just knows. And Cassie knows her mom's wrong, which is kind of like yes, mom, and kind of head down. So I wonder, you know, not to play amateur psychologist, but how much of that stinging affects Cassie's move to the West Coast. How much of that affects, I don't know, her relationships? I think there's a couple of things happening with the mother. Like one, I think it definitely is part of the reason she moves away. But the other part is her father has really sold her this bill of goods that if she just does X, Y, Z, she'll get to have the American dream. And the one right. thing I, I did want to get at with this book is this idea that a lot of people in my age group were told, like, if we got a master's degree, if we got a college degree, if we finished high school, we would get the house, we would get enough money, we would sure. be okay. And I feel like 
the more I keep looking around, I'm like, that's not exactly the case, right? We have a bunch of people who we took out the loans, we did all the things you told us to do. Mm. And now we're kind of constantly in this economic cycle where we can't ever really get to where we were supposed to get, you know? And so she's really kind of emblematic of that. The other part Mm. with the mother is she has such a strong relationship with her father that I needed a kind of a foil Because there is no, you know, I don't know a lot of people who have great relationships with both, you know, and if you do bless you, I'm happy for you. (laughs) Um, But I, for who she is and how she behaves as a character, it did not seem like it would be uh, possible for her to have so much depression and anxiety if both of her parents were these like loving, well-adjusted parents who were supportive of her. And so she did kind of need one of them to be the grit you okay. know yeah, that, that, ends, makes sense. that ends up being the mom for sure i mean i have to say in earlier drafts the father was really the focus and it was one of those things in the editing where the mother came out more and there were more scenes of her added um and balanced because we tried really hard to close every you know loose thread um and so some of the scenes towards the end especially were also meant to escalate with the world around her. I mean, when I, I actually, I map out and outline every novel mm. and it's helpful for me to know what I'm writing towards, because I think if if you can do it without doing that, like bless yeah. your heart, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. But it's, if I have to sit down and write every day and every day I have to reorient myself and refigure out what scene I have to write, I have a job. I don't have time to do that every day. I, I also like, you know, I kind of nudge people. I want to publish books in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take 10 years to write a book. Sure. And so how do I do that without sacrificing quality? Right. Because you, because th- that's the other part I can write a really fast book and it's going to be shitty. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I need to balance that with like the editing and that extra work. Yeah. But, um, you know, once I outline, obviously I still have the flexibility to move things around, but in the initial outline, I make a kind of colored bar for each theme in the book. So it'll be like her mother, the black hole, the job, the man, you know, and I really, you saw all of them escalating at the same time. And it was, I was thinking a lot of like uncut gems. Oh my God. Right. right? And I always tell people when I teach class, like, you know, the fun thing about plot is like, you can just take any part of it and put it on steroids. You don't have to overthink it. Mm. And I loved Parasite and Uncut Gems because things just kept escalating. It was almost all of those were just escalation after escalation. Right, right, right. Uh, I I did want to do that for Mm. her in this book. Yeah. I could talk for hours about Uncut Gems. Same. Same. One of my favorite openings ever when you pull out of the screen and you see his name and his age and it just tells you exactly who he is because you were just inside of his name. Killer. Killer. Uh, yes. I think about that all the time. I don't know what the book version of that is, but. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. My brother's like, hey, I saw this and like, check it out. Like, he, I don't know if it was him or someone else was like, you know, you're not going to like be able to, your, your heartbeat's going to, your heart rate's going to increase all throughout the movie. I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever. And I'm like, yep. You're right. It's it literally funny. does. <laughs> I was thinking when I left both of those movies, like I felt so anxious and on edge, but then I was also excited that I felt something. And I yeah. kind of, and I do, you know, maybe it doesn't feel good to other people, but I, I think probably the thing I dislike the most about a work of art is if it doesn't make anyone mm. feel anything. It's, you know. Yeah, no, totally. 
Man, black <laughs> uncut gems. What a movie! It's like we talked about you. You do. You did the scientific research. At least you fooled me because it seems pretty dang good about oh, you know, no. black holes. I did, a, I did a lot of research. I literally oh, yeah. joke to people. I'm like, I could speak in the basement at an astrophysicist conference. Like I couldn't be on the main stage, but oh, I could definitely yeah. be like in a breakout room. <laughs> That's hilarious in the basement. I always That's am waiting so for specific. Some, like, I like it. I'm always waiting for some like astrophysicist to come correct me, like Carl Sagan's wife to be uh, like, not. <laughs> but yeah, I've read yeah. a lot of research papers. And it was so funny because like during the editing process, my agent would be like, can you dial up the black hole? And I'd be like, <laughs> I get so mad because I'm like, why did I pick this thing we don't even understand as human? Right, 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 right. And now I'm trying to turn it into like a fictional. <laughs> and there were so many versions of it. Like some versions, the black hole would talk to her. In some versions, oh, it was taking up techies and eating them. Um, and so, but eventually those things all started to feel very coy and, and funny versus like, it is a very real sadness and fear for her. Yeah. Didn't yeah. want it to be, that element wasn't meant to be funny. It was meant right, to be right. foreboding and terrifying. And so ultimately, I, you know, it became about the smell and the sound and the size versus let's personify it with a voice mm. or a hunger, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's, a, that was probably the hardest thing in the whole book to get right. Mm. I want, it was Corbett, the guy who was the Ivy league mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Corbett and maybe, maybe Nicole, but if I had to pick one person to get eaten by the, the black hole, it might be, might be Corbett. It would. Yeah, he would be, but here's the thing. This is the thing with it as a concept, if it's eating techies, then it would just be eating every other character she interacts with. Yeah. No, right. Yeah. 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 Hard, hard to pick just one. <laughs> yeah. So you, then you're like, okay, well now she's got no one to work with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Goes empty. <laughs> like, yeah. I thought it was really interesting that, that Cassie talks about this black hole has been trailing her as long as she can remember pretty much. Right. And then it goes back and says it's been trailing since the beginning of time. And so I started to think about like the cycle. It's hard to feel sorry for Cassie's mom at times, though she does have very good moments. Did her mom have that depression too, or that anxiety? You know what I mean? I just think of like the cycles. I think of, um, you know, especially with women, obviously you, know, you talk about like the sad girls and obviously it's unfortunately way less, um, well, yeah, just ideas of women and what they've been, been put through through all these years and that the depression is often hidden you know, you need to be a good mom and all these things that are projected upon them. I just wonder if you're kind of making a point too, intentionally or unintentionally about, about women and depression and just how far back it goes, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes even beyond gender to like this idea that when you step away from your parent and you look at the systems that created them, mm. you can have a ton of empathy, but it also doesn't change the end result, which is that their behavior really impacted you. Yeah. And one really good example is, I don't believe, and I'm not sure if this is true for you, but my parents were not talking about mental health. It, they were not going to therapy. They were not talking about taking medicine very much. Like all of that swept under the rug. You deal with it yourself. Don't bring it up. Be and so I do get excited about our generation coming through, starting to talk about these things, to get medicated, to start to take care of themselves because even, but again, even though we can see these systemic reasons that these things happen, it doesn't make it any easier to go deal with your own mother who might have sure. hurt you pretty badly, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think it's both that her mother has been through it and also, like, in the end, it still impacts her mm -hmm. tremendously, right. you know? It's almost easier to have empathy for someone else's parents 
and see it that way versus like being able to attribute it to your own family because it's, it's sometimes so personal at that point, you know? Definitely. It gets easier to be objective, right? With mm -hmm. something that's not yours. Father is is such a lovable character. Love the heck out of the father. I mean, he's definitely he's definitely an East Coast Philly guy or East Coast, maybe Italian. I don't know. You know, he's toxic in his own way too, though. <laughs> sure. Very, you know, his obsession with jobs and money, like I think, is a big reason that she's trying so hard to please him. Mm -hmm. Leads her in down some paths that are really complicated. So it's so funny because it's very easy for the mom to appear toxic, but I also think there are parts of the father that are. There are him like pushing almost male traits onto her and expectations, you know, and there's a way in which that's also kind of crazy and mm -hmm. not healthy either. Um, yeah. So yeah. No doubt about it. I mean, kind of talks in generalities, right? It's like, oh yeah, what is it? Get on the train or I forget the, you know, it's like, but, yeah. but hang on, like, let's think about this. Oh yeah. You know, the next step, it's like, well, what if, you know, for me, that's not logical. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, or this idea know. of like you can't come back here is like very yeah, cool, right. You know, um, so it's it, I think it's complicated on both sides of that of that sure. family. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we talked about the job. The job is working it to the bone. These three thousand dollars. Somebody in maybe the middle middle of Iowa or something like that maybe think three thousand dollars, but you know this is San Francisco, this is L.A., this is New York, just ridiculous rent. But she's making good money. But it's all just a cycle, you know. Is it is it any is it worth it if she doesn't have time to to spend that money or enjoy the money or or if it goes right out the window as soon as she gets it, right? Because exactly, it's like, almost just on a hamster wheel. I was like, I was kind of it was hard to write about money because you always see this stuff on Twitter where people are like, "That's enough money, you should be fine." Uh -huh. And with her, I you know somebody asked me like, "Why didn't you put her salary in there?" And it was like, you know, because if I said, "All right, she makes one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year," everyone would lose their minds. But the reality is in San Francisco, that's actually not really enough to be there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and so there's mm -hmm. all the context that's missing. Um, and, you know, I've had people be like, why didn't she just get a roommate? Well, you know, it's just like, okay, listen, the point of this is <laughs> not that her personal decisions are the problem. She's not living an extravagant life. She's not going yeah, to make No, not at all. She's oh. just literally living in an apartment and going to work. Okay. <laughs> and every once in a while she goes to dinner. That's yeah. it. And so, uh, you know, I'm sorry that you go to the art museum for ten dollars. Well, Whatever. the coke, the coke habit, maybe. The coke but... habit. Okay, you got me on that. You did get me on that. But again, that's also because you can keep working, right? And so yeah. it's like it is a cycle she's caught yeah, in. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So totally. I, I kind of get mad. I feel like people miss the point when they start like blaming her because I'm like, the point of this is like not one of us individually is to blame mm. but like the cost of living and housing and inflation is yeah. through the roof and our wages have not you know what i mean yes like, yes you know not even close to kept up with inflation mm -hmm. yeah totally one of the great scenes is um it's well it really kind of introduces the title as well it's just you know so many ripe fruits out on the table like the sexual harassment training or any other kind of trainings or meetings they have. And it's just kind of like, you know, whoa, she's not, Cassie's not used to seeing this on the East coast and there's pomegranate and there's, you know, passion fruit and this and that. And this idea of, you know, the pomegranate, which you later describe um, is very, you know, mythical, right? It's the seeds um, 
sorry, uh, refresh my memory on the connection to Persephone and like the Greek myth and like, yeah, yeah. And, like fertility and such, right? Yeah. Well, she ate the seeds. So she's like captured by the god of the underworld man and she eats some seeds while she's underworld down man. there. Uh, and then that's where we get the seasons from. You know, I it's not a one to one play on Persephone, yeah. but it does add an interesting layer of like, is San Francisco the underworld or is it? the upper world and she's now going to get in, sucked into another mm. underworld right like mm. is the is the floor yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The bottom yet um but yeah i didn't want it to be a true one-to-one but yeah i mean i've researched the hell out of pomegranates too that also sort of <laughs> obsession it was you know it was that in black holes for sure i'm i'm embarrassed to admit every once in a while i'll buy them you know preceded or whatever the term is five bucks when you can buy like three for whatever do you do you get them uh, as they are? I mean, are you a fan of pomegranates, or maybe you don't eat them at all? You know, I was I always had one on my counter while I was writing this book, and uh -huh. I would eat it. Sometimes I would just let it kind of vibe there. Um, but like when I say obsession, I mean like if I wasn't writing the book, I was researching pomegranates or black holes, or I was engaging with art. Mm -hmm. I would go to like it was since it was during the pandemic, I would go to the databases of all the major art museums and look through what they uh -huh. had you know, collection of pomegranate. Uh, there's a really great like poet. It's like a poetic document documentary called The Color of Pomegranate um, that actually inspired a Lady Gaga video. Oh, but anyway, it, once you see the color of pomegranate, it's like very much a visual reference for a whole lot of other things. Yes, know, which is cool. Kind of a little aside here. Uh, Stephanie Feldman, a writer from Philly. Yeah, outside Philly. Friend. yeah I know Stephanie. I love Stephanie. Have you read Saturnalia? Yeah, I've learned Resignalia. it. And we have the I, same publisher in the UK. Yeah, that's my girl. Awesome. I, I was I was honored to talk to her. And I was just I was thinking when you're talking about like that underground is San Francisco, the underground. And when they go to like, I guess that oyster place they go to, he goes, she goes to with the cook is not underground. But there's definitely that that you build that underground, that darkness so well. And I just think of like Saturnalia, just how these they go into these parties and everything's kind of on the on the hush, but it's not really. And yeah, I just kind of reminded of that. That's cool. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that parallel for sure. Yeah. Some really, some really cringy. And I mean that in a great way, like just so such great scenes, so much tension, awkwardness with the workplace, right? There's Sasha, who's her boss, but a lot of times seems to be, you know, giving these just off the wall or incredibly obvious, you know, answers. Um, Jeremy, who, you know, a lot of this is Jeremy and Cassie seem to be good people and, you know, down to earth and really just get sucked in and do some things they would normally you know would just you know feel horribly guilty about but do some pretty you know bad things mm -hmm. um all because they want to feel like they have to to continue with the work and such Ooh, one of my favorite scenes was again so cringy but when they play that game called tell me oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. where sausage is like hey someone's like literally just met but tell or i don't think it was her somebody else right tell us the most traumatic experience of your life it was that i mean that was the way you created that that world building was so good is that i hope that's not based on real life or um, I've signed several NDAs, so I can't really talk about that. For real? Okay. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. I just, you know, here's the thing. Here's what, I'll, here's what I will say about it. <laughs> Especially in tech, because there had been, and I don't think this is still the case, there was such an appetite for the young, badass CEO uh -huh. that what you had was a lot of people with zero business experience or understanding of how to run an mm. actual day-to-day -day business 
or HR laws or anything like that. Right, 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 right. With a ton of money and a really big title. And I mean, I've worked at companies that were so young and early that mm. they didn't even have HR or HR was there one day a week. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Oh my God, That's, one day a week. That, so how do you really like build a culture that isn't going to be predatory or bad for someone when that's what's going on, right? It's like, you're, you know, this is why when we talk about the CEO is God, it's because when a company is that small and they have that much money, that's yeah. the only person steering the ship. That's the, every yeah. day. That's your example. Cause you don't have a bunch of other older people to look up mm -hmm. to. You got that one guy, right? He's not older. He just has the money. Uh -huh. And that's kind of crazy because like, I don't know about you. I know that if someone just gave me like millions of dollars, I would hope I would be a good leader, but would I be good enough to have 500 people model their behavior after me? Sure. You know, And when you start to look at the cult of it, like you <laughs> do see people who dress like the CEO, they eat like the CEO, they, they mm -hmm. really, and I, I manage a team in tech now where I have five employees and I do know now, like, my behavior has a lot of weight, even mm -hmm. if I don't want to believe it mm -hmm. the way that I act. They think that that's the way that it should be. And I have to be really careful. I don't ever talk about what they eat, what they wear, who they date, mm -hmm. music, anything that anything that would pass a value judgment on them, because no matter what I do, it has 50% more weight because I'm the one in charge of their raises, yes. Yes. their employment. Right. So if you don't have an acknowledgement of that power and this man does not the ceo does not mm -hmm. what you create is that you know mm -hmm. um and then you have a bunch of people around you who don't really know how to do their job and they're just grasping at straws and then you start mm. playing tell me you know Jeez. yeah that was uh that the book was worth the price of admission just for that just for that scene wow you know okay cool now that we've done that you know oh my god yeah. Just, just the the traumas. Uh, starting to kind of tiptoe around here because I don't want to give away the plot and the spoilers. She does have this relationship with the chef. Kind of see him as kind of like right, like the creative kind of in opposition to her being so he can kind of do what he wants when he wants for the most part. Has a little bit more freedom, and she doesn't. Her, her life is work, work, work. Even her friends are in some way reaction to work, as in they hate work together or they work together, right? Um, and there's you know the the relationship with the chef is a very interesting part of the book to say the least, obviously that's, um, she continued to using, using drugs to get by. There are some really, there are some beautiful moments in this, despite all the depression she has or this black hole following her around there's, a, is it crystal jar? Is that the term you use for like the memories? Yeah. yeah. Right. Of her mother. She has this crystal jar. Even when her mom was, was carefree, she has all these crystal jar moments, you know, and going back flashbacks to her dad and all of that. So there, there's the, the beauty there. And the dad becomes a confidant. He's working as like, you know, at the store. He wasn't able to kind of retire. It seems like he's maybe in his 60s or 70s. But I'll, like I said, kind of leave the plot alone for now. I want to point out, uh, I couldn't even tell you what part of the book this was. It's almost like you could take it, you could take this passage out. And it's just very, it's just um, seemingly so knowledgeable about life. And so I'll read just a little bit of it. It's, Cassie, headed, I headed to the big meeting room where the CEO is waiting. I take a step across from him. Looking forward to this, he says, grinning. And then I do what the company asks of me. I feel like this is so many of us could relate to this. I shove everything down. The chef, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to give away some spoilers. Pass my white ribs and red heart into my belly. The black hole now expanding hums loudly next to the whiteboard. You wake up one day and realize what you've become, what you allow, and you have to stare down into the pit at yourself, at your own choices, at the ways in which you have been cunning and stupid and false and wretched to keep up with the world around you. 
How does anyone bear themselves? How can anyone stare into the darkest corners of humanity and return to the office, enter the meeting room, and deliver the presentation? How do we all just keep working? Damn. And obviously, I would have given you more time. I would have had you read it. You would have done, obviously, a better job. But I was reading that yesterday while I was kind of half on Twitter, half following the Super Bowl, not really that interested, but also, you know, doing my work. And it's like, you know, how do we, how can we really watch the Super Bowl when, you know, what's going on in Pal- and Gaza is going on, right? How do we, if we really think about everything that's going on in the world, how do we even thrive and sur- even survive? One, I want to just compliment the heck out of that. that was such an incredible work. Talk about Hemingway. I love how Hemingway would just string ands, not commas. So cunning and stupid and falls in. How much of your book do you feel like is very specific to her experience, to the experience of the of a woman in the 2020s, 2010s? And how much do you hope it's kind of more on the universal side that it can be read in 20 years and 40 years? Um, that's a, that's yeah, a big I, question. You know, it's a, it's a huge question. I mean, you always hope you're writing something that will last. And I think... I don't I don't even think her experience is fictional. That's definitely been my experience. And I I mean, I'll give you a great example. It's like the day that Roe was overturned. I still had to go give a presentation. No, nope, nobody stopped. And I'm and I'm living in Texas at that time. So it's literally something that's like physically impacting me as a single woman that like I have lost a right. I have a I like I can't think of anyone else who has lost a right in a long time. Mm. Most of the time, at least by law, maybe, maybe right. unofficial or something. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Uh-huh. We never would legally take something away. Right. And so, but again, you still have to earn your paycheck. You still have to go to work. Um, and I think that's happened to all of us multiple times over the last four or five years, especially mm-hmm. given COVID and people dying from it. And yeah. you're, how do I go to work when I have a sick grandparent and my kids are running around at home and they're sick and I am still having to do my job? You know, it just, it has, um, yeah, just, it's, it's how we're operating now, mm. you know, we, yeah. there's no moment where you can put your hand up and just say, Hey, I can't, I can't do this right now. I can't do this today. Mm-hmm. How can I, um, my dad used to say all the time, like the reason we have a 40 hour work week is because if we didn't, we would be in Washington DC burning those buildings down every time they did something messed up. Right. You know? And it's kind of, it is kind of true. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I will say that from a craft standpoint, right. you mentioned the like use of and, and, and. I think there is definitely something where I usually prefer like a short, crisp sentence. Mm-hmm. But whenever she is really starting to come unraveled, I let her have uh-huh. that moment where I'm like, yeah. Let really like stream of conscious. You don't need to make this pretty, and I think you can really see that in the final scene of the book too. And also yes. when you know there are moments throughout where when she's starting to become really unhinged, you can see that in the text. So you were you were mentioning earlier like Carmen Maria Machado, you know the 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 great, and she gives you such an awesome blurb. I, I know it was featured in the in the New York Times. I don't know if it was that review or another one. But it talked about the ending without giving any spoilers, which I'm not going to do as well. But the ending, again, sorry to keep saying it, but again, I was reading on Kindle, and I guess maybe because of the, the the footnotes and stuff, like I thought I was farther away from the end than I was. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. You know, I thought it was coming later. And how the ending is explosive in some ways and that it's not, but it's such a fitting ending, such a good ending. I don't even know what to call it, but it was so skillfully done. How did you decide to end 
this type of book? How did you, was that like you knew from, you know, you talk about outlining, you knew from the beginning, it was more like it kind of evolved as the book went on? Um, I think one thing about endings is until you actually sit down and write them, I don't think you're ever quite sure. Yeah. Um, but I also kind of thought of it as like Schrodinger's black hole, right? You get used mm. to the black hole being there. And then it's kind of like, well, of course, there's a logical outcome to this, you know? Mm. Um, and also, I was really struggling with a lot of what comes up at the end of the book, which is so many of us so afraid of death. But the implication of that is that things are great here. Mm. You know, and I kind of was asking myself that question, like if I could go to another dimension or another world and have missed COVID, mm. especially the part where we were in lockdown, because obviously it's not over, but like, um, would I have stayed here, uh. you know, or would I have gone and checked out something else, you sure. know, mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, the ending, I think you can read it two different ways. And I, I like that because you know, that satisfies me as a creative project, because I always say the ending says more about the reader than it does about me, because, yes. you know, depending yes. on how I feel that day when I'm reading it, you know, there's one of two outcomes. And if I'm in a good mood, it's one yeah. outcome. If I'm in a bad mood, it's sure. the other. Outcome. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but that is kind of like a choose your own adventure that it kind of stays fluid with you about how you want to take it, you know. For people under 20, Choose Your Own Adventure was a book. <laughs> give, some, give some history on that. That's awesome. And I, I love the ambiguity of it because, yeah, I mean, there's no life doesn't really have a lot of clean endings. Yeah, and I mean, I think, too, like there's never going to be a pretty bow on anything. Yes. You know, I'm not ever satisfied by endings. Yeah. Like, unless I'm reading like a mass market paperback and I know that's what I'm going to get is, you know. You know what you, yeah, exactly. It always makes me mad, though, because it's like literature, it's like people, you know, have seen the mask for happy books. And it's like, I don't think literature has ever been happy. I can't think of a, mm -hmm. a fine literary classic where it was like mm -hmm. everybody was well adjusted and things were going great. You <laughs> Seriously. know, Seriously. I, don't yep. think that's why we, I don't think that's why we do this. Is Let me know when you find one, right? Let me know when you yeah, find one. I, I don't, I'm I don't, still I don't, looking. Yeah. So you yeah. also, you have yeah. my email. So you also can be <laughs> if you find one. Subject line, I'll just put the book name, right? You, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's so much, so much in the book. The the whole storyline with Noor, the the Pakistani who wants to be part of Voyager and doesn't know what he's getting into and is very much a parallel of of Cassie. That's such a great thread as well. The ideas of the rent hike, he talked about how and that's obviously unfortunately true to life. And just the ridiculous um schism between those living very, very rich and those who are just, you know, unfortunately unhoused and just living in squalor so many. And there's just a smaller middle class, the all kinds of things that you really deal with. I mean, even touching upon kind of generally, right, like the like the opioid crisis and like the, the emptying out of some towns in the Midwest and the Rust Belt and all that. There's just so much going on in the book. And I wish we could talk about more of it, but I also don't want to because I want people to read this book. And the plot is so interesting and so much um, that I don't want to spoil you could, you would be totally justified to just be like, well, done. This is it. This book got Roxanne Gay shouted it out, got New York <laughs> Times, all kinds of good stuff. But you did say you're working on things. If you would like to to share, what uh, what are you working on for the future? If you'd like to share. Yeah. I mean, I think a short story collection and a novel are kind nice. of- Nice. Yeah. So I haven't gotten to do like, you know, a big short story collection. I had a chat book when I was like 25 and that's been long out of print. So- Okay. Um, 
just kind of noodling on that. And then in terms of the novel, I probably won't talk about that much because I, you know, don't like to jinx sure. it. Sure, sure, sure. I, I was taught by a novelist friend that you don't talk about it till the full first draft is done. So hey, fair enough. Yeah. Are, have you had short stories that have started to be collected, like that are in different journal, like this, if this were a collection or is it like st kind of starting from? Um. So I think it would include the out of print chapbook mm, I and everything I've had published since. And I mean, since I've never put one out, it's quite a lot. But okay. I also write really short, short stories. They're very short. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, I, it's, it's so funny because it's like, you know, 27 stories, but it's like 40,000 words, you know, it's like, uh -huh. but for me, and they're also crazy. I mean, they're just unhinged. And so um, we'll see, it's like shaping up, but I, you know, that's another one. You don't want to jinx it, but I haven't had a short story collection out yet. So it's, okay. you know, yeah. I was always so like, like Ron Hansen's a, as a writer who was one of my professors, he did like uh, the the coward Jesse James ended up being that movie. And, but he'd always use the verb collect. And I always thought that was the coolest thing. You know, my, my stories haven't been collected yet. As if there's yeah. a person with some gloves, you know, just kind of like. It turns out you actually do the collecting. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, exactly. It turns out exactly. you're the one that collects them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, look, I never in my life thought I would even get where I am now. So everything yes. was like frosting on a, there it is. Take. Yeah, there it is. Well, can't read the can't can't wait to read the collection. I know you said there's some of them are shorter, but 27 stories and maybe growing. It's going to be a freaking tome, right? No, that's like what like I'm a... saying. I have 27 <laughs> stories, and I'm like this. <laughs> but that's how short reading... I write. It's like not enough. It's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look forward to reading that, and um, you know, thanks so much for talking to me about Ripe and just about the writer's life, and wish you great luck with your work in the future. Awesome. I love your show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a pleasure it's been to speak today with Sarah. Sarah Rose Eder. Continue good luck to her with her writing and her important work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chills of Will podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sarah is also easy to find at Sarah Rose Editor on both Instagram and Twitter. I'm very excited that starting in February with episode 220 with Neef Ekpadom, I will have one or two podcast episodes per month featured on the website of Chicago Review of Books. The audio will be posted, embedded, along with a written interview cold from the audio. A big thanks to Rachel Leone and Michael Welch at Chicago Review. I'm looking forward to the partnership. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills of will podcast Peter Real. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting. Ooh, that's a lot. To keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The February bonus episode is with Karen Uden and her incredible book, Dixon Descending. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. 
The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on this episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 224 with Peter Coviello, a scholar of American literature and queer theory whose work addresses the entangled histories of sex, devotion, and intimate life in imperial modernity. He's also the author of six books, including Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, which was selected for the Million's most anticipated list for 2023. This episode will air on February 20th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Sarah Rose Etter, whose work, like Ripe, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 